Welcome to The Furrowed Brow with Jeffrey Kipler. I think people of my, my not necessarily my generation, millennials, but like the younger millennials that were teenagers when Obama was on, on the rise, it was just like this fairy tale situation. There was, I think this is like when a lot of institutions were simply not questioned. And it was great hope. Obama, I remember when Obama got elected and I, I was definitely on the left at that point in time and had really great hope that this, this eloquent, beautiful, deep thinker who really this amazing presence and a black man like would figure out how to sort this shit out. And then all of a sudden, he gets the Nobel Peace Prize, and a few years into the term, he's bombing the shit out of other brown people. <laughs> and I was just like, what? This is not how this was supposed to go. Look, I think you, it's not just one of two ways, but for simplicity's sake, you could stay in your illusion that Obama was perfect, the party did what yeah. it could, or you can go down like a pretty cynical route about just the fabric of the country and that branches out into its own little sub subcategories but i think especially when trump got elected mm -hmm. i went down this really righteous it felt good but problematic rabbit hole of hardcore progressive ideology really so trump getting elected kind of sparked you to go deeper into the leftist mentality welcome to the furrowed brow with Jeffrey Kipler. You want to just right, get right into it? Yeah, let's do it. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of The Furrowed Brow. Today, I have Gary Shan. Gary is a US-based technologist, multi-hyphenate creator. I hope I said that word right. A civic entrepreneur who is dedicated to building and evangelizing technology systems and movements that generate hyper-local resilience self-sustainability and dynamism he was one of forbes 30 under 30. you can find him on TikTok, where he has 133,000 followers that's four orders of magnitude more than i have on twitter <laughs> he has also has a relatively new youtube channel level up america where he interviewed my wife jocelyn pearl and he focuses on all things foundational tech he might be the best hype man I've ever seen and got into speaking uh, to. Appreciate it. And while Gary and I'm sure we're going to find out we have some disagreements on our worldviews, I've done a lot of research on Gary. I've watched a lot of YouTubes on him, both his work and where he's been interviewed. And I am beyond impressed with the journey that he's on, his thoughtfulness and sincerity and the strength of his character. He has attributes of I want around me and on my team through this journey through life. Gary, welcome to the Furrowed Brow. Super honored for that really thoughtful introduction. I had to do a good hype job for you because yes. I'm hype, hype up, hype up the hype right man. now. Got to hype up the hype man. Appreciate that. Yeah, I'm excited to dive in. It's been a minute since I've been on this end. Nice, nice. So. I'm going to break this up into kind of three segments here. First, we want to just go through who you are, what your background is, where you came from. I'm hoping you might touch on where your parents came from. I want to go into the way I met Gary is through my wife, Jocelyn, and it was just at the dinner table. She was telling me about how Gary has this TikTok channel and he does all of these really kind of one minute explainers and how he's really good at it and got a big following. But what piqued my interest the most and what I hope to focus the second section on 
is kind of how he went from a sort of a woke millennial to, and I'm going to use Vernecki's uh, terminology here, is to try and work through his place in this overall meta narrative from where he came. And then the th third section is Gary has a, a kind of vision for how he wants to see the future and where he's trying to lead lead everybody and his and pointing his content at as he's trying to figure out his role in this meta narrative. So. Gary, if you could just kind of give the audience just a background of who you are and where you came from. Yeah, I'm excited to, to dive into these three parts. But yeah, to start, I grew up in I grew up in suburban Illinois, but I think it's always helpful, especially with what I've been focused on recently, to go all the way back to 1964. Okay. In, in China, when communist stormtroopers essentially came into my grandfather's home, ripped him apart from his kids and wife, threw him into a truck and sent him to a re-education camp, yeah. not just briefly, for literally six years. And this is when my dad was four years old. We talk about childhood trauma. My dad's awesome today. I think he's gotten over a lot of, a lot of that. But four years old to 10 years old, imagine not having a father figure in your life. Terrible. Right. Yeah. But that put a huge chip on my father's shoulder to make it in spite of basically the family being seen as like an enemy bourgeois to China's future. So he studied his ass off, became number one at math in his essentially his high school, got into the Harvard of China, aka Peking University, and worked really hard to get into grad school in the U.S. at Louisiana State University, where he was able to bring my mom over. And this was a really interesting time in world history and Chinese history, U.S.-China relations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my brother was born March of 1989. And this is literally right when tons of young people started to show up like every day in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, because there was like an awakening about the importance of freedom and real democracy and economic liberties, civil liberties. So really interesting time. Just a few months after those protests initially started was that massacre that happened when people dispute how many people were killed. Could be hundreds, could be thousands, but doesn't change the fact that the only reason why I'm alive is because the U.S. government took action to allow my parents to stay in the U.S. basically as political refugees. And that was uh, that was H.W. at the time, right? H.W. Yes. Yeah. Um, so there was a number of different acts. The most prominent one was probably the Chinese Student Protection Act. Yeah. So I was able to be. My parents weren't forced to go back home to China after they finished grad school. And thus, because, and then, so my family was basically able to avoid the one child policy. Um, wow. And so I was able to be born. So I think about that these days pretty frequently. And I just think about what is the role of immigrant kids, especially immigrant kids from countries that are markedly different in how they operate to the U.S. The U.S. is not a perfect place, but I think You'll hear me talk a lot about foundations, foundations, foundational tech, right? I think the foundations of the U.S. have still have tied for first in terms of potential to to lead humanity in so many Who, different ways. Who's it tied with? I don't know. I guess I'm just saying this in kind of a 
from epistemic hum humility. Yeah, I'm not, yeah, yeah, yeah. So but like first I, among equals in many ways. I agree yeah. with you completely. The, the experiment that is in the United States from the time of its founding is a is a unique aberration in history in many ways, where yeah. it, it didn't come from a king, it came from a rebellion, and it had these guiding sort of principles that were, while born out of other countries, were really foundationally unique to the United States. For sure. And there's this, people like to, when they're pushing a certain narrative about the U.S. being like irredeemably racist or oppressive. <laughs> Compared I mean, to I just, what? <laughs> I, I just think, yeah, it, it really just, it's a lot of it comes from a good place, but a lot of it is just, is really ignorant to what's happening anywhere else in the world, yeah. really. So, it's funny. You're like kind of the second, I don't know, I don't really want to call you a refugee exactly, but my last guest, Ace Del Deliri, he, he had the same sort of comments. I mean, he came from Afghanistan where he was a refugee and went to Canada and it, very similar thinking along the lines of you. For sure. And it's not, it's not like you're asked, like you as a white guy are asking for sympathy here, but I have a almost like a privilege and a responsibility to talk about America in a certain way. It is taboo for someone like you to talk about it because especially because I can just reference my family's personal history and it's yeah. very hard to, you like, get to put on the victim card and you get credibility for it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy to me that that is a chip that, that that's available to place in, in such a powerful way. But okay, I don't want to get, I want to get to this in kind of the woke millennial to your current vision sort of section, but let's keep, so you came, your parents came from China. Your father went to the University of Louisiana. Where do we go from there? Yeah, LS, LSU. LSU. My parents were in IT. They moved to Illinois at some point shortly after my brother was born, where I was born. And I had a, a nice suburban life. Didn't really think about America like at all in terms of just yeah. like public service. What a blessing not to have to think about it. <laughs> no, I would just, I think people of my, my, not necessarily my generation millennials, but like the younger millennials that were teenagers when Obama was on, on the rise, like, it was just like this fairy tale situation. There was, I think this is like when a lot of institutions were simply not questioned. And it was great just... hope. Obama, I remember when Obama got elected and I, I was definitely on the left at that point in time and had really great hope that this, this eloquent, beautiful, deep thinker who really this amazing presence and a black man like would figure out how to sort this shit out. And then all of a sudden, he gets the Nobel Peace Prize, and a few years into the term, he's bombing the shit out of other brown people. <laughs> and I was just like, what? This is not how this was supposed to go. Look, I think you, it's not just one of two ways, but for simplicity's sake, you could stay in your illusion that Obama was perfect, the party did what yeah. it could, or you can go down like a pretty cynical route about just the fabric of the country and that branches out into its own little sub subcategories. But I think especially when Trump got elected, mm -hmm. I went down this really righteous, it felt good, but problematic rabbit hole of hardcore progressive ideology. Really? So Trump getting elected kind of sparked you to go deeper into the leftist mentality. Yeah. So it just, 
the narrative was so easy to latch onto that so many of the building blocks of America, maybe it's like most core foundation were again, irredeemable. The heroic- What was it about Trump that you thought the election of Trump that made you go down this irredeemable sort of path? I'm, the narrative, while there's definitely truth some truth to it of essentially white remember when van jones said white lash no i don't remember this one. Oh, interesting so like right after the election he was like yes this is white lash and i thought oh, I, was- okay so this is like the white people's revenge for obama narrative exactly and okay. I, to- I fully bought into that and someone that Asians are like largely ignored or down. (laughs) Oh no, you're white now, man. You're getting basketed with us. Or downright oppressed in a way, right? College admissions. Oh yeah, hundred percent. You've got to be like, what, a half a standard deviation better as a Asian guy than a white guy in order to get into the top schools. For sure. For medical school, you have to have basically perfect MCAT. Like (laughs) these kinds of things kind of go unquestioned. And because the prevailing like social culture is one of who can be more awake or woke to (laughs) the injustice of the current system. You compartmentalize the fact that like the system is not necessarily fair to my people, Yeah, but but no one's talking about that. It's almost like an inconvenient truth that you just like put to the side. And then let's all talk about these sanctioned injustice. Right. And so like, for whatever reason, I felt comfortable doing that. And then I almost, there was almost looking back there, I think there's almost like this sense of pride that as someone that was, whose, whose people were being oppressed in a certain way, wasn't focused like real on oppression in your generation. Yeah. Wasn't focusing on my, my, my generation's your parents' generation. Yeah. No, so I'm, I'm even saying Asian people have not been treated super in the country. If you look at media, like the hyper demasculation of the Asian male, sure. also like way harder to get into good colleges. Like we said, I think just you know, people just generally don't see Asian males as leaders in the culture. I think these things are all changing, but there was no room in the culture to talk about these things, at least relative to basically BLM narratives. Yeah, absolutely. Was I outraged when I saw certain cases like Philando Castile I still think those are absolutely outrageous that that even happens once and what is this with the castile so it's just one of the many incidents where a black man is just like a police comes up to the car and then definitely not grabbing for a gun and just gets murdered right oh, yeah. by a cop right so these things are i don't want to i don't think that they're actually very prevalent but with but they're all unacceptable they're all unacceptable but it, 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 the amount of attention that they get is right possibly disproportionate to the magnitude of the occurrences for sure and there's and i can speak from experience that there is a massive incentive to inflate just how prevalent something like this is right and yeah. what it mean what it says about how good or bad really bad america is right? yeah and i i'm grateful for so let me explain to you like how i specifically got involved so Post-2016, I saw a call by this big woke activist to join this kind of resistance type stuff. It always blows my mind that they call it the resistance when it's like all the mainstream media and corporations all have its back. It blows my mind. We go on. Yeah. So, I mean, that it, it's like all, it's all kind of funny in retrospect. I was accepted among the people that applied, like 
dozens of people from McKinsey, LinkedIn, Facebook, Google, were all in the this like private slack. You know, you're part of the resistance when McKinsey's on your team. Oh, exactly. Yeah, just like <laughs> underdogs. Everyone, but <laughs> I got put on the social media team because I had done my social media for my own music blog that I had that was yeah. pretty successful and there was like no direction from the leadership and it was like super hierarchical and weird and it was also it was structure without leadership so it was like yeah it was like the worst of all worlds eventually the very quickly that organization fell apart um but I still had access to posts on Facebook and I was so pissed about what I was seeing about Trump and about the Black Lives Matter stuff that I just started to, I was like, okay, maybe just ask for forgiveness, not permission. And so I just started and I turned out I was very good at it. You're um, a very persuasive man. <laughs> I'm actually curious to hear more of your thoughts on that. But I realized that I had a lot of fun. It felt like a game to me of getting people really engaged and riled up in that year this page that I helped create and single-handedly ran went from a hundred thousand to almost a million followers. It's a big deal. A billion impressions in 2017. You've got a business. I don't know what the main guy was doing. I'll be selective about saying what I think I want to say, but I was lucky to have been working at Google while I was doing this and mm -hmm. took zero dollars from this. This is something I genuinely believed in, which is why I don't feel so bad about what I was doing. But the reason why I stopped doing that was not because of my own like self-awareness. It was because my ex at the time, my girlfriend at the time was like, yo, you're not fun to be around anymore. Ooh, that's interesting. Yes. And so and she, why would you, why did she say you weren't fun to be around any, uh, anymore? Because I was just scrolling Twitter angrily oh. every day and just talking about how shitty America is. So yeah, you're this privileged Duke student who is working at Google in New York City, angrily, essentially angrily tweeting every day. Yeah, right? yeah angry at the world. Yeah, yeah. And I just stopped being as fun. So comparison between who I used to be, which was like I had thrown two dozen parties and concerts during the time that I met her. Yeah, like electronic music parties. I had a small stage at a festival once. I became a very different person because of ever since Trump got elected. And it was hard for me to give up posting on this account that I built up, but I realized I was just like wondering what was this actually doing? Mm -hmm. I'm actually, I did not, I was not, I did not feel confident that what I was doing uh, in terms of the negative psychological effects on people that were consuming the content outweighed. I do not feel like the benefits to society were clearly happening to justify the damage psychologically that the polarizing content was doing to them. And I had a very specific case study within myself of what the content was doing to me. Yeah. It's funny. I think it was, I think it was around 2015, 2016. When Trump was getting elected, I had this like real, and I, I ran my own Facebook page. That's the limit of what I was doing. But I had a realization that the algorithms were making us fight against each other. Yeah. That it was this like anger amplification thing. Yeah. And I sort of just got off of a Facebook because I was getting into fights with friends and family over stuff. And it was just, 
it was an anger anger amplification mechanism and it really I wasn't using it well like I was falling very think much victim to the same sort of thing you were doing at a industrial scale industrial scale world-class outrage <laughs> creator totally <laughs> okay so you have this epiphany I am the greatest like troll anger generator attention getter there is in this space right now maybe tied for first in some way and what, what where did you go with this next i just cut it out cold turkey i was like nice. this is bad this is bad for me this is bad for the country and i was just like i don't care what whoever does what with this page like you can do whatever you want to do with it ultimately without being too specific the person that ultimately owned owned the page just monetized it yeah. uh, in, in, in a way that was like pretty gross but yeah fuck that guy this is and that also opened my mind to the idea that like okay maybe there's maybe you got to be very suspicious about whether you think that you're a good guy you're on the good side or whether there is a good side when it comes okay to that yeah let, let me ask you something what do you what, what kind of philosophical mistakes do you think that you were making at that point in time, besides just being a, ma making rage for no good reason? Because you mentioned like you make it, because this is a philosophical shift that I went through when I moved from left to right or whatever the hell I am now. How did your mindset start to vary? or change. Here's the funny thing. I am a very, as I'm sure you are as well, like heterodox thinker and definitely cannot be neatly bucketed. But if you were to answer a basic question of is left or right more associated with personal development and hard work and responsibility at its best, right? And it's like ideal archetypes, right? It's definitely the right. Mm -hmm. It's And it's almost like I had during that period when I was most identified with hardcore left my health was deteriorating i didn't yeah. go to the gym as much i'm sure i was like literally what i was doing posting was like blaming people for the society's problems you the victim mentality to totally and then that that just carries out into your whole life and yeah i was get so imagine you're dating someone who then your boy your boyfriend is getting fatter more more irritable and less fun right. that's like not a good combination. Thinking he's superior to everybody else and letting uh, a million people absolutely. a day know. I mean, I, had, I was not good at taking feedback as well about <laughs> how I was not super fun to be at parties anymore. <clears throat> and just like, talking about politics whenever I could. I've been that guy. Yeah, you, you, hopefully you learn. But I think long story short, what happened when I cut out that political stuff, cold turkey, was I worked on myself. I stopped. That was my first attempt to stop drinking. This was, uh, did I, okay. This wasn't when I stopped drinking. Okay. But it was like, it was the beginning of a real. But you uh, recognized you had a problem that era, like, you needed to take steps in a different direction. To, to improve my life in just many different ways. Yeah. So I started journaling. I started to run regularly. Mm -hmm. I ran outside in the cold, like freezing cold because I'm sure have you heard of Wim Hof? Oh yeah. My brother is really into to Wim Hof. <laughs> Yeah, I just started to like think about like human potential and taking it's again taking responsibility for my life, fasting, and just like a bunch of different things that started to just like, implement my, into my life. And I just got in really a lot better shape. And I was like, okay, it's time for me to just start really thinking about what I want to do next in my life. And 
this is when I was like, you know, I started to discover like this thing called nonpartisan democracy reform with like ranked choice voting, open primaries, yep. things that I still really believe in. And so much so at that time, I was like, okay, I kind of want to create a nonprofit to train young people to care about this. And so helped launch a Civics Unplugged, which is a nonprofit that currently it's just like pretty broad leadership development. But at the time, the first thing that we kind of tried was like a, a deep focus on democracy reform. Yeah. Turns out kids really didn't care that much, which is interesting. <laughs> but ultimately, like, it, it's hard to create a product that no one wants. So we had to adapt. Yeah. But I think this problem of like process changes, systems changes, not being sexy to people is something that Andrew Yang with the Ford party is going to have to figure out. Yeah. People for decades have been trying to make parties around or initiatives around structural reform. And it's happening like incrementally here and there across the country. But have, have you played with the idea that democracy or you, the U.S. political system is not fundamentally changeable in the way that you want to approach it? Yeah, I don't know how much it can change like it's an open inquiry really like yeah. that i haven't spent too much time anymore thinking that much about which is why actually i it's not it's not out of a deep libertarian sort of impulse it's just like a very practical okay pragmatic even, yeah yeah even if the government is more malleable than i think it is and useful let's invest in more technologies that can serve as building blocks of the future that ideally honestly both major political parties want to co-op because they're so fucking cool right mm -hmm. like okay it's actually good for my political brand to be associated with nuclear energy or like water desalination or whatever i think the job of i think the people are really the leaders like the mm -hmm. innovators are really the leaders and let's allow politicians to take some credit for things even if they're not doing much at all relative to how hard it is to create a foundational tech company but they're certainly not going to lead the way in charting out like a inspiring vision for the future so that's a lot of where my mind has shifted towards i'm really grateful for andrew yang and other people that have basically said i'm just going to be a, my it's like my brand is just going to be associated with electoral reform government mm -hmm. reform but i really think that's more of like a multi-decade long endeavor and getting young people to be less reflexive about joining like big tech or big banking or big consulting yeah is like these I high think, status high money positions that we're told the best and the brightest go to these days i think that's a that's probably lower hanging fruit and as that culture changes you know as people just kind of choose different kind of career paths i think politicians will notice and i think that they tend to just be followers really so mm. how do you create a culture that politicians like do want to co-op that they want their party to co-op if both the republican party and democratic party and ford party and whatever else like they start making foundational tech more part of their their policy agenda i think that is like one of many signs that the things that i care about are taking off doing it in spite of them instead of through them resonates a lot of with me Essentially, yeah. So it's, I think there's many ways that government can be really additive to the research and development and adoption of foundational tech. But it's like almost it's like a useful 
it's like a useful fiction for entrepreneurs to assume that they're not going to get any help. Yeah, Makes sense. for sure. B versus, oh yeah, we'll definitely get help. And so yeah. let's bake it into our business model. I think that's, that's a little bit risky. What ends up happening, I think, is that when the government or any sort of political agency becomes your number one, your only customer, or your number one customer, you now work for them. You work for their agenda. You don't really have any other choice. It's, but if you're getting, turning down free money is also not necessarily a great path either, especially if it's with minimal strings attached. Yeah, I mean, it's you work for the government or the government works for you, even though you are not serving the people. If you look at Sam Bankman Freed, it's easy to pile on at this point, but it's a it's an important case study, really. He basically bought off the Clintons, he bought off oh. the Dem the Democratic Party, he bought off a, a good number gonna, of Republicans. We're gonna find out how much forty million in the protection money, along with having your mother be a major democratic fundraiser, how much safety that buys you. For sure. Yeah. It almost feels like Sam was playing the game of Robin Hood as well, or at least like, that's like the, almost like the best interpretation of it. It's like, he wrapped himself in that cloak at a minimum. What? He wrapped himself into that cloak at a minimum. What I mean is I almost feel like he looked down upon the crypto industry and was trying to use it to make money to then give to more worthy people. That's the most generous, I think, no, interpretation. No, exactly, right? yeah. and, and that's not even, and that's not even like that great because you're literally saying that like people that invested their own money into whatever they thought was investable are idiots and like bad and that this industry is bad. And you're literally using it to do what you thought was better, which was yeah. invest in various mostly Democratic Party candidates and and buying the rights to name <laughs> like sports stadiums and stuff like that, right? Yeah. So and it's most cynical. You start to looking at it as a vehicle for laundering money that's meant for Ukraine through other sources to other sources and companies as intermediaries. It's I've been following this on Twitter for the last 48 hours, and it is wild the stuff that is starting to come out about whose money is flowing where under that little umbrella. It's uh, it's pretty mind blowing, and there's I'm sure that there's tons of case studies that we won't be able to get too much information about, right? Because it's now safe to reveal information about Sam because he's like the ultra supervillain, right? All these different investors and all these people that have ever interacted with him are now like, oh yeah, I had this one weird interaction. Oh, the signs were clear. But there's so much yeah, political it's corruption with businesses that are not actually doing that much good or doing active harm. Yeah, have you ever heard of Rene Girard, Mimetic Desire and the yeah. Scapegoat? Yeah, that's completely what this reminds me of. Sam was this sort of like poster child for the new wave of investing. And he uses image and connections to get all of this money and everybody piled on because they saw everybody else piling on. Yep. And now he's becoming the scapegoat of for all sure. of it. For sure. Yeah, so quickly rose, so quickly fell. Like in, in less than a decade, like four or five years or something. He came out of nowhere. It's tr truly phenomenal. His parents really understood how the world worked or the, um, they thought, at least they thought that they understood how the world worked. And they did in terms of certain, here's how you get on the cover of Forbes. Here's how you get Bill Clinton's attention, right? Yeah. These things really matter to a lot of people. And I think there is like a large group of people that it's actually, they're right now. It just raises all sorts of red flags, which I think- yeah. 
I almost feel like we're developing cultural antibodies against people that kind of smell like Sam in the future. I think you might be, I mean, I know everybody's going to be duped again, but I hope and think you might be right there. I think there is such an, uh, the, the cycle for these scams is getting shorter. Let me bring you back to, I want to go back to your Civics Unplugged moment here with John Vervecki, because I really like that conversation. And anybody listening should really go listen to it. What jumped out at me was one comment that you made about educating kids on civics. And the comment that you made is, why would the government teach children how to alter it? Why would the indoctrinational education system in the United States teach them really how to play the game? So I was wondering if you could comment on that. And then I want to ask you about small oasis. It's funny, like the different things I've said in the past. I, yeah, I mean, I, I've learned a lot about, especially after being in the web three space for a little bit. So it's like, wh where else do you learn a lot about incentives besides civics, politics, and the supercharged unmasked view of incentives with crypto, right? Just learned a lot about it. But yeah, why would you approve curriculum that as a government funder of civic education that makes people too aware of how broken the systems are. This is a sort of a straw man, but I'm sure you could find textbooks still being taught with write a letter to your representative as if that does anything. Right. right. It's one thing to like only teach so much and force people to read, find out information elsewhere. But it's also, I'm sure what's happening as well is just like falsehoods being taught like fairy tale visions of how our system currently works. And that's that has profound negative consequences if kids have an intuition that this is bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, instead of feeling empowered by your civic education, you're just like, this is propaganda and I'm just never gonna vote or I'm never gonna try to do something else that could make uh, the country better. So what did you mean when you started, when you talked about building small oases and then scaling those? I think there's this understandable obsession with scale in like Silicon Valley, for example, you get VC money. If you have tons of new customers signing up every day, there's a lot of that temptation in the nonprofit space to boost your metrics of like how many people are in your alumni network, et cetera, so you can get more money per head. It's understandable, right? It's not nothing I'm saying that's crazy, surprising. When you think about like the transformative experiences, the transformative groups of people that you've been a part of, they tend not to be, you're not like thinking, oh, like I was part of this thousand person program, like all thousand people had a huge impact on me. What if it was like a hundred people or even 50 people or even 30 people that like, there was like a really curated environment that made sure that every single person there was feeling like they were seen, valued, and supported in their development. And I, again, I think there's this temptation is, okay, let's say like you, you did the 30 people for like a year and like it yep. went really well and all of them did amazing. And someone's like, yeah, yeah, you should scale this. Like you should make your program 300 or 3000. Right. And the problem with that is that it is because of that intimate small oasis size that the program in the first place worked. So why like all roads kind of lead to media for me 
is and why I also kind of want to talk about reality TV, which mm-hmm. actually relates Please. a lot to this. But we can talk why, about whatever the hell you want to talk about, Gary. Part of why reality TV is so inspiring to me, and it sounds like ironic that I would say anything like that, but it's not because a random like dating show is, I think, is a huge positive influence on the world. It's like there's models that can be applied to mimetically inspiring people to see what to replicate what they're seeing on camera right yeah so the small oasis idea it's find the most canonical like the best example of whatever kind of education let's say that you think teachers everywhere should be trying to emulate and it's like tricky because then you'd have to like train the people that are getting educated to like not be go crazy because cameras are around you but let's assume that they somehow figure that out if you could somehow capture the magic of a transformative educational like container in a way that is really inspiring to the world. You could imagine many thousands of teachers hosting their own 30, 30 student oases and maybe even connecting across teachers through some kind of digital learning environment. I think there's real future to that idea. I do a lot of thinking about educating kids and getting them out of the indoctrination system of your public education, you know, cause I got a daughter now and I'm hopefully going to have more kids and it's, I don't want to hand the education of my kids over to my enemies. And what you're talking about there really resonates with me in terms of a model that is both humble in its original scope but has a plan that it could also have legs beyond your small, for sure, small start. For sure. Because, and this is, I think this fixes, I think it's, it's really important to be suspicious about people who have a brand that's, oh yeah, I don't care about money. I, I just really care about doing good. I don't care about attention. And yet they're on camera being interviewed. I like attention. I'm I, doing this for a reason, for personal interest for me and my family. I make no bones about that, that this is, I enjoy this, but there's intent behind it beyond just a public service for sure and so me being kind of like ruthlessly self-aware and honest about like why i do what i do it's yeah i want money yeah i want attention yeah i want to do good as well of course yeah like i'm a human and i also just if i wasn't if i was a teacher like in this hypothetical environment with the reality tv shows that might make it worth it for me because i get the recognition then i could that i could then monetize in the future in, in some other ways but like Right now, does someone that could be like an investment banker or Google engineer, do they want to be a teacher to 30 kids right, right now? They have like very little incentive right now. So how do you sweeten the deal? Get the best fucking teachers to be in this reality show, like this like superhero academy thing. Never and- thought of it that way, but that's a very interesting idea. But you're exactly right. How, and Jordan Peterson talks about this quite a bit where you can get the best guy to teach Plato and Aristotle, right? And everybody can see him and benefit from that. For sure. And these are not simple things to pull off, but yeah, like this idea of not losing the magic of the small, but then also scaling in a way that's not conventional terms of scaling i think that's really interesting and i think we have we all we have all the technology i think that we need to pull something like this off i'm sure there's tons of startups that are like they're thinking about something like there's synthesis school i know joe norman is part of that i know that jordan peterson has some stuff going on with that putting online st- schools yeah i think there are people working it it becomes i believe a problem of how do you package these different offerings together and utilize them 
in the environment for because every group of 30 kids is a little bit different you're going to have different needs and wants and what have you i doubt there's a universally right answer for every group of 30 kids for any given age and for sure know. for sure i do think though that having like literally like almost like a reality tv show of a really good example of teachers and how they would interact with students and make them better gives like this shared case study library so let's say you and i are educators and we both watch the same show it's oh wow what what mr smith did for evan to deal with the conflict between evan and jill oh i'm seeing that happen with my own kids and that was a really good reference point for for me yeah i wonder how you like so jocelyn loves some reality tv and I like it too every once in a while. But one of the things that they, the problems that they run into is producers engineering outcomes in order to have good TV. I wonder how you mitigate those types of effects in an environment like that. You're just saying, you're saying it should be interesting. You're making an entertainment package right. to an extent, right? And how do you mitigate the idea that we're going to induce Billy to have a problem that he's magically going to overcome and it's going to make this great magical moment because Mr. Smith is going to bring him a popsicle at the right time. Yeah, I'm not sure. But one, one thing that comes to mind is I think the premise of the show has to be like pretty challenging or the purpose of the school has to be really like ambitious and there's so that there's an inherently a lot of challenges that they have to mm -hmm. overcome right the teachers for how to create the right curriculum for let's say a bunch of gifted kids that that think very differently maybe there's some like a number of neurodivergent type kids and it's not easy to make sure that the kids play well together right yeah i don't know ultimately it has to be interesting people in the show mm. sure that all have like a lot of, they're like agentic people that like want to accomplish their own goals and the collective goals. Gotcha. Cool. Let's turn this over to your more robust vision overarching for the future. So Gary is what I would call like the optimist optimist, where he has a very positive view of the future and what is achievable through technology, organization, and inspiration. Now, he and his, some of his writings that he has shared with me tries to rebut the Doomer point of view. And I'm what I call a Doomer optimist in this sort of a model. I believe that life is gonna get worse before for most people before it gets better, if it gets better at all for most people. Specifically, the optimization supply chains have created an incredibly fragile system is likely to fail in unpredictable ways. Energy availability, which grew by orders of magnitude, lifting billions out of poverty for the past 200 years is likely peaked from a growth perspective. But here's what makes me an optimist. And that's my doomer half. Despite the coming difficulties, I believe that I can lead and my friends and family can come through these difficult times and adjust. And the adjustment and the ability to deal with new problems in a local sort of way where we make the necessary lifestyle and cultural changes will thrive regardless. But so I wanted to preface that where we're going with that, that I'm going to be kind of criticizing from that point of view, but I want to hand it over to Gary now. Tell me how awesome the future is going to be and how do we get there? So I'm like, I don't know how important it is for me to label the kind of person that that recognizes things are going to get worse. Like I, I agree, right? I am, Oh shit, maybe we're the same then. 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I'm too far from, or I don't even know where I would disagree with many Doomer optimists, but I think it's going to be a rough transition from a hyper-globalized world to a much more like regional or national type supply chains and everything. Okay. I think there's that does be... not come through in your writings. It's it doesn't I I guess when you look at that like manifesto that I sent you. Yeah. I don't there's a lot of things I could say that I don't need to say. It's okay. It's commented on the like the the document with a ton of random beliefs. Like I could include what you said. I, I don't disagree. Yeah. I think things will probably get very bad for most people in the country, many, if not most people in the, in the country, but 10 years from now, I just think that we will, culture changes so fast that you just never know how much like momentum there is for foundational technology. May, maybe I should qualify that a little bit more in my writing. I don't know. But yeah, I think that we, I am say, I think that it's not even just a matter of getting rid of stagnation. It's a matter of avoiding collapse. And I think so it becomes how far does something collapse, right? We, I think listening to you now, I think we both share the recognition that the system is overly fragile and really has some, some potential to, to stop functioning in the capacity that it's functioning. It's how far down the rabbit hole does lack of energy for people go? How little clean water is there kind of things like what kind of food supply chain problems do come around and how what how good are the mitigating effects and those all of those things might vary yeah. by region in my particular right. estimation here's my thinking on it people will if they had to pay a lot of money to survive that they would right? and what does that do that creates a huge market for survival water desalination right there's not a lot of water in the south southwestern united states anymore yes but like that what does that say about the market for technologies of course governments can be very cronyistic about what technologies that they sanction and adopt even right just because of politics but like the market is for ensuring that the future of ag agriculture and fresh water just for human consumption is huge and it's gonna and it's gonna grow i think like the massive pain that people a lot of people will feel as we adapt to like ecological changes as we adapt to aquifers draining and like rivers drying up etc it's gonna be painful and oh. I think, but like, certainly to me, at least it feels like five years post a crisis, there's, there, there'd be so much talent that's being poured in to certain issue areas that we're kind of systemically prepared for, like, we, we just kind of change society to be able to now just pool water from the ocean to, to grow our almonds now of just relying on the Colorado river or whatever. Yeah. I think it's going to be a really tumultuous decade, but who's working hard behind the scenes. It's like all these people that don't get featured on like and stuff like that. Yeah. And it like that, uh, smart professors that actually care about their students working on top issues. If there's like a huge drought in one or more states and many people die like you don't think that they're going to talk about that in their innovation classes like i that's certainly what i would do 
I'd be mm -hmm. like, yo, figure it out. Let's, and if I was a billionaire and I could donate to, to some kind of university to increase research in a certain area, I would do that, right? Or to create my own research institution outside of academia, like a lot of what like Eric Schmidt's doing and et cetera. I think that even though government is often pretty bad at responding to things, I think really smart people and really rich people outside of government will probably respond a lot more swiftly than we might think, or maybe we didn't even think about it. And I would love actually some case studies here on, on this, on what I'm saying, but you don't think that if, again, if you think that some may- well, I think back in the 1980s or so, the EPA, for example, did great work cleaning up rivers, cleaning up smog. There is precedent for collective action under a government umbrella with, pri with private partnerships to do very good work. Now, I think I, I talked about this in my second episode with Jason Bradley. It just became that these monstrosities just couldn't, once they did all this good work, they just kept doing more work and kind of overstepped their authority. For sure. For sure. I think it's, I think it's always helpful to have, to put on different hats, right? Like mm -hmm. your For sure. humor hat, then optimist hat. So when we put in the optimist hat, you're like thinking about like, now there's a normalization of even private companies cutting out half of their workforce, right? Of course. You sympathize with the people that get cut, right? Of course. Yeah. It's tough, but great. That meme is now being normalized. Let's apply that to government. Imagine entire, <laughs> imagine entire agencies being cut. Oh man. Or it's like, you have a month. It's like, hey, I just got elected. Let's say it's president DeSantis. <laughs> Hypothetically. I, I get, look, you, you think that Biden's second, second term or like Newsom is going to fire like half of an agency or an agency. No, th this is, it, it's going to be, uh, my prediction is that it's going to be a Republican president that's able to create great efficiencies in government, right? To rebirth the government. Yeah, imagine like DeSantis, right? Just like you have a month to justify the existence of your agency. And actually, I'm going to create some voting mechanism for the American people. I, just, I have a ton of ideas. You should hire me, right? Okay. You produce a report, we're going to, we're going to create a system where you have to prove you're a citizen. And then like the whole country is voting on whether this agency should exist anymore. Right. Based mm. on this report. Imagine that. I just, I literally just thought of this right now, but I, I don't think it's like for someone that actually wants for someone that's not culturally pressured against changing, questioning the institutions, you're so empowered, right? Because you have this growing, like I say 70% of the country that's, they may not identify as like a Republican, for example, but they're just like, I don't trust the system. And they, like this process that this new president laid out makes a lot of sense. They're giving this agency a lot of opportunity to justify their existence, right? And then with democracy, they're voting on whether it should exist anymore. Or maybe there's three options, like 50% of the workforce cut, 70% of the work or all of it's cut, right? So, so a referendum on government, federal government employees. And it could be ag agency per agency. So it's not mm -hmm. just blowing up everything, right? And so we're just like, yes, it's like the best case scenario for the agency, if it actually really is awesome is, wow, the American public now knows of this awesome agency and there's more trust in government, at least in this particular regard. So if you have nothing to hide about what you're doing, and sure, there's like some exception with like black projects or whatever, but- like, <laughs> I, I think it was Senator Schumer once said about the CIA and NSA, you don't fuck with them because they have a million ways to get at you. For sure. So I think we can be practical here of just being smart with your life if you're the president. <laughs> but like, 
they're they're just there's so many ways to, for the American people to feel like the government is not just serving itself and do it in a way that actually appeals to like this sense that our democracy has died, right? Okay, if it's died, let's put out, let's put out more things to a vote instead mm -hmm. of, you know what I mean? But how do you, okay, with interest rates going up, you have, I'm, I'm not sure you're aware of this or not, but like the interest payment on the national debt is now approaching the size of the military budget. It's becoming one of the highest lines in the federal budget. And my observation about democracy has always been that people generally will vote themselves more stuff, but they won't vote the taxes in order to pay for it. How do we resolve that in this case? Yeah, I don't know. Or do we just hyperinflate our way out of it and pick up the pieces after the budget defaults? Yeah, I, I don't know. This is this is definitely not my area of expertise, but storytelling is a, a big part of what I think about and um... you're an expert storyteller. I and actually one of my one of the things that really jumped out at me when I was listening to your John Vervecki interview was how good you were at telling the story of educating kids and how and it really struck me about how that seemed to be just a perfect vector for you in terms of your talents is like inspiring people to educate children and i don't know i don't know if you have teaching experience or not but like that just seemed you just seemed like such a natural there talking about For sure that so i mean i definitely didn't go to education school but like yes yeah. i i, can yeah, think I don't think that teaches you to do what you do anyway i think i can think from first principles that about like certain things i'm sure that education school doesn't teach about oh you should be inspiring Right, there should be inspiring because it's, it would be hard for the students to do that because they're kind yeah. of like self-selects a certain kind of person. But I want to go back to the national debt thing because Please. I almost feel like there needs to be more transparency with like economists, etc., about how even though financial system it feels oh more objective numbers, it's like the reason why the U.S. dollar, one of the reasons why the U.S. dollar is like still treated so with so much reverence is because the stories of other countries is worse. Way worse. So the, yes, the national debt number is feels scary, and we should like, and but it's scary. And part of how we improve the story around it, whether or not the interest payment rate can go down by that much, is we have a we change the culture around government, where it's like all of a sudden there's different turns. It's like, let's say irresponsibility is the y-axis has gone up, and it's okay this new president is like turning it finally. And so it's almost like, just like how the market booms, even though like when inflation goes down by a tiny bit, even though there's still a lot of inflation, it's like people pay attention to the delta, pay attention to like second derivatives or third mm -hmm. derivatives of like certain numbers, right? So if like the rate of the debt increasing goes down, not, not necessarily the debt increase, the debt could be increasing by a shit down, but it's like the rate of increase. Right. I mean, that's how Biden has been packaging his commentary on inflation recently. So it's like, this, no, it's all bad, right? All inflation at all is, is, or just the rate of inflation is right now is like very high, right? But they're going to comment on the second order of mm -hmm. it. And that's, that is misleading. But yeah, yet, it is clearly very powerful for people because it affects their where they put their money, which is like their most prized thing, right? So if all of a sudden you have this real check on 
the growth of the administrative state, I actually think that would have a huge boost of confidence about the integrity of the US dollar. Again, I don't know what the fuck do I know, but what I do know is that when it comes to like an Argentinian, the average Argentinian buying US dollars versus their Argentinian peso is not an economist. Yep. But they'll probably be hearing stories about whether America is becoming more trustworthy or not, with mm -hmm. or, or more responsible or not with how they're spending their dollars. And they're actually, they care about inflation all of a sudden. They care about not just printing a ton of money all the time. What our leadership and the policies that they put in place have everything to do with the stories that we can tell about ourselves as a country. And it has a real effect on our economy. Interesting. Okay. So you're, you are within like the Dow, DSI communities. Are you a big, are you a cryptocurrency or Bitcoin kind of guy? I support Bitcoin. What your question is just about. I was just wondering if, because I know you're involved with DSI through, through Jocelyn and you're part of one of the DAOs. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a contributor to Gitcoin DAO, which supports all sorts of cool initiatives in Web3 through its quadratic funding rounds that have happened historically every quarter. DSI was a new round that was introduced <clears throat> and a good amount of money was distributed to projects like the ones that Jocelyn is involved with. Definitely not they, super involved. You guys were supporting LabDAO, I imagine? So the way that it works is Gitcoin is not supporting any organization directly. It's has created this like money distribution protocol mm -hmm. where like ordinary people like you and me can decide where matching funds get, get, get sent. Mm. So it's like a coordinating like structure. Gotcha. So 10 people donate $1 to one project and two people donate $10 to one project. The one that has more small dollar donations might get way more matching funds, but that just, it's like basically this algorithm that allocates like money that Vitalik puts in because he wants to be, he wants that money to be distributed across popular projects. Gotcha. Okay. What do you think, what do you think Gitcoin does best or what is its biggest accomplishments? It has, so one thing that it's done really was it's had a, I think a really positive effect on shaping web three culture, which is very associated with just like hyper financialization yeah gitcoin is very like gitcoin all the employees there are very <clears throat> focused on making a positive impact on the world and seeing how crypto can actually even be useful in like ecological regeneration although that whole sector within your finance is very nascent mm -hmm. and i think there's a lot of potential but we'll see and then like DSI is another one that they're just like, yeah, these are all good things that are happening. All these different experimental scenes within Web3, Gitcoin has really promoted these things and distributed a, a good amount of money, like tens of millions of dollars to <clears throat> these like early stage projects. Some of them eventually get VC funding. And then, so it's almost like the pre, pre-seed investment, you get it from Gitcoin, just like- Pre-angel investment. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. It's a lot of people depend on a lot of tons of early stage projects depend on Gitcoin's funding rounds to sustain themselves as they basically figure out how they can sustain themselves in other ways. And then the other thing that it's doing is it's building decentralized protocols that allow for anyone to host their own grants rounds without Gitcoin's help. So that's yeah. like a, a longer term future. 
lot so do you have any particular Gitcoin funded projects that you're particularly interested in seeing results yeah. in a year or two, five? Yeah, I don't, I think it's less about for me, any one particular project. What I'm most excited about is the let a thousand flowers bloom. Gotcha. Kind of philosophy where it's really hard to know who's going to have the tenacity and has the right idea. Yeah. That stick. Even the ultimate irony is that even Gitcoin, right? Will Gitcoin survive this bear market, which could last for another two plus years? Yeah. Who knows? And so I think everyone has to have a lot of humility, <clears throat> including the organization that a lot of people like Gitcoin, that a lot of organizations really respect and rely on. Cool. So is there anything else you want to talk about what you're working on or you know, the, the, your vision for the future, solar punk is, or what have you? I was definitely a big proponent of solar punk for a few months. I really liked the aesthetic and I think yeah. I'm like a synthesizer. So I really like to take this from here and then this from here and it's okay. How can we turn that into something that like an intellectually honest philosophy that yeah. like, like, oh, I'm a, I'm this, right? And solar punk, I think there has, there's a little bit too much of a, a little bit too much on the anarchist and even communist influence. Yeah. And I'm so like- what, what, How could you describe solar punkism for everybody? So just like with any like philosophy, there's different people that think it's something, but- one of the most popular documents is it's a document written in the anarchist library mm. where it articulates what solar punk is. <clears throat> so I'll read a line. Let's see. Okay. So at its core, solar punk is a vision of a future that embodies the best of what humanity can achieve a post scarcity, post hierarchy, post capitalistic world where humanity sees itself as part of nature and clean energy replaces fossil fuels. Oh yeah. That's definitely some commie shit right there. It's something that's, it's like very idealistic. It's like almost clearly not written by someone that's like run an organization. <laughs> yeah. The hierarchy thing jumps out at you real quick, right? Yeah. It's like, you're not going to get anything done if you don't have any <laughs> hierarchy. But yeah, take inspiration from where you can. I think that there's, it's, it's, it's weird. It's weird to even think anytime I'm like writing out like visions and like basically building out new philosophies I'm just like, who the fuck am I to do this? But then I like realize that then I realize that like some of the most popular philosophies are pretty bad, right? Or they're, oh they're, yeah. So it's like, how do you? It's like there's a gap, right? Okay, if I'm not gonna do it, someone's got to do it. And I think there's also just as there's a great. I have a. I almost feel like a responsibility given my story for why I want to create an evolutionary sort of philosophy that like <clears throat> does take from a lot of the philosophies that I've rejected. Yeah. That I, so I think the messenger really matters. And for whatever reason, I think that I could be a good one. Oh, I think you're an excellent messenger. I consider myself a synthesizer also. And I think you, I don't really think there are that many new ideas and that's okay. I don't really have any original ideas, but I do think it's important for every generation, every person of a particular background to have somebody who is arranging these ideas in the language that people are familiar with. Exactly. Thank you for that. Thank you. That's a good articulation of that. And it's really is important. And I think we burden ourselves quite frequently with the aspiration of originality. And I don't believe that's that important. The synthesis itself 
coming from you is necessarily going to be original while still ne necessarily being reminiscent of all of these other, we stand on the shoulder of giants, which is absolutely actually absolutely how it should be. Absolutely. Yep. I appreciate that. No, that's exactly what I, that's a great way to look at it. Yeah. Anytime I just feel like not courageous enough, I just remember like from first principles, like this makes sense. Like this, the worst thing that happens that could happen is that it doesn't get as widely adopted as I would like, but it's, even if it's, this is like the worst case scenario, even if it's really just like, has been an exercise in articulating what I believe it's great. Now I, now I can point, it's like, instead of just having to ramble to that, to someone about what I've been, it's like, they can read it. Right. Yeah. It's like, are we in the same, well, it's like, are, are we lying? And, but the, and it's even the simple fact that guys like you and me, and you touched upon this in your conversation with John Vervecki, the dialogos, the conversation and exchange of ideas helps you work things out in and of itself. And right. it's like a man never steps in the same river twice because it's not the same river and he's not the same man. And the, that's what exactly these conversations do. It's where we're, we are trying to figure out how we are going to articulate these ideas, what works, what doesn't, and having this sort of ongoing dialogue. You're 29, right? If you even had the inkling that you had figured out a life philosophy at 29, I don't think I'd want to be talking to you because that would be a, a pretty pinnacle of hubris. So 44, I am still struggling with these things and I, I plan to keep on struggling with these things because uh, if you're struggling because you're still doing work and it's an important work, and you have the humility not to think that you have the answer yet. But also the confidence to know that the many of the dominant philosophies are very problematic. Oh, yeah. So is there any that you would like to talk about that? Because that's, I will tell you, the problematic dom dominant philosophies is the main theme on this show. I don't know. I can even just point out like a meta, like a through line across problematic philosophies it's lack of willingness to engage in idea exchange and to be self-critical self-aware and that's one of the things that impresses me about you so much is even when i jump into hey i'm going to be critical i'm coming from this doomer optimist thing you're like yeah i kind of agree i just don't like framing it like that kind of thing you have a particular willingness to engage in a true search for truth that is refreshing yeah, I guess here's another common like critique I have about dominant philosophies. It's, it is like compromising the truth for profit to, to kind of speak to an existing deluded audience, right? Yeah. When I talk about like advising and it could be, a, I would be honored to advise any sort of president, right? But like when I talk about advising like a Republican president, I'm not endorsing almost anyone, right? Mm -hmm. The Republican party. One thing that I try to avoid although I don't always succeed is like saying this person's good, this person's bad, this organization is good, this all, all bad, right? The thing that I'm pointing to when I talk about the Republican Party probably being the highest potential to actually make government more efficient is not saying, oh, Republicans are good. I'm, I'm just seeing things for what they are. <laughs> There's one party that is increasingly unified with how things are right in defending it and then there's another party that's like that whether it's ironic or not identifies as 
the rebels now. And so if it if we can agree long term that someone should create a culture and processes for like creating increasing efficiencies within government agencies, potentially eliminating government agencies, sometimes creating new ones that are needed, right? Being very interrogating of what should be around, it's going to be the Republican Party. I'm hap- I'd, I'd be happy to be proven wrong, right? Mm. Uh, I'd be happy to be pleasantly surprised by, by Biden tomorrow and being like, it's time for us to, to really run a tight ship in the government. It's not gonna, but it's not going to happen, right? It's not going to happen. <laughs> I think people should not completely write off entire parties. They should not just fall in love with entire parties and be be like slaves to them. They should, I'd say, like found the foundational tech space that I want to help manifest. And I'm not saying that there is like there is there's so many foundation there's so many companies that i would consider foundation tech i think there's a lot of power in a space realizing it's a space a scene realizing it's a scene like individuals realizing that they they should be connected to a bigger movement right so they actually have political influence right Mm -hmm. because government regulations do affect how much foundational tech can be created i wanted to run away from the world for quite for a bit of time, I thought I was just going to escape and get over all of it, but you, I don't think that's really possible so much. So it'll be a really interesting one thing that you can't, I almost feel like Twitter is like a mirror to, to what's happening in the world. It's very chaotic. And I'm also literally saying the organization of Twitter. So the social media ecosystem and then the organization, they're both mirroring what's happening in the world, which is very chaotic. And mm-hmm. It's also extremely entertaining and is also ex- an extreme amount of opportunity for people that do not get caught up and just join like a random mob that that kind of that forces them to relinquish their free thinking abilities. And yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. The ability to independently state your ideas without feeling like you're going to be punished by the mob is very important. Punished by any mob, really. Yeah. I think it's important for people on the quote unquote to have self-awareness that they get triggered by stuff as well. And oh, sure. they, they, it's almost like the, if you identify with an inability to be the mob, like you're going to have more likelihood of being the mob. Same with SBF. Like if everyone's telling you that you're going to be like Warren Buffett, except better and past presidents are just singing your praises. I think I, I love that this is a case study now, right? I love it because it just, it really just, it's so rich with relevant themes and motifs of our day of like establishment consensus about (laughs) this organization and this person is good and we should listen to them. And yeah. Paying off the Clintons, paying off the democratic party. His father is a tax, uh, like a a expert in like tax shelters shelters for Stanford as a lawyer. This is so, (laughs) it's so funny. So it's like every elite institution got on board, um, like in in one way or another. Tom fucking Brady got on board. Gary Gensler's former boss is the CEO of Alameda's father, right? Father, yeah. Like incredible amount of conflicts of interest here. And I'm glad that eroding trust in government it's like we need better government right we need more accountable government and this is uh, yes the both parties have been extremely corrupt over the past many years 
but the Democrats are way better at it. The union of big media, big sports, big Hollywood, big banks, big consulting, big tech, and the Democratic Party, like all having a shared consensus is a huge danger, right? What? It's an unbelievable monstrosity. It's very dangerous. And I I am the last person that would excuse the sins of the Republican Party. But it's also, it's, what's important is to understand that these parties are shells, right? Entities that can be, they're malleable. Mm-hmm. Except the Democratic Party is less malleable because it, it really is this, it is, there's so much pride in this like institution, right? It's almost like the Republican Party. It's like this malleable thing that, also has ballot access everywhere in the country. Yeah. But there's no consensus on who, what it is. But seemingly not mail-in ballot access. So it has this, my critique, and I support people, absolutely. I support people starting third parties and nonpartisan reform. I'm a huge fan of that. The practical thing is if you want to rise in power very quickly, it's you, you recognize that Republican Party lacks identity and leadership that will lacks a consensus about what it is creates a huge opportunity for someone like DeSantis to remake it. And the thing about, I guess the final thing I want to say is when you have such a strong control over a party, you can also, like you've gained so much trust with a voter base like DeSantis has, you can shift the views of your super followers, right? in a positive way, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's actually already invested in the environment in Florida. I don't know if you knew that. No. He, he's invested like, I think like hundreds of millions of dollars, right? In climate adaptation stuff and stuff that you'll never hear reported really. But uh, imagine him doing that on a national scale and in a way that's like really practical too. It's not just, it's not just doing research into far out technologies. It's yo, Texas is like whatever, like coastal cities around the country are about to, are going to go be submerged if there's not federal help. We're Mm going to do that, right? We're going to protect people's property, right? There's a way to get people on board with acknowledging that there's climate changes without sounding like John Kerry. You know what I mean? Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, I I think think there's a lot of opportunity with, again, I don't want to like to put labels on myself, but like disaffected former partisans that really understand like how you might be able to message to both the Republican base and at least like moderate and center left type people. So it's going to be a really interesting decade. Oh, sure. And I'm really excited about people realizing that they need to be in charge of their own lives and that they should stop kind of outsourcing their trust outsourcing making like their own lives better and to other people because we're you you get again and again you get duped yeah man 100 percent with you on that one you know what that might be a good closing thought for it is there anything else you wanted to talk about or say i guess i'm just excited about a meme that i think is really unifying which is foundational tech and you want to give them the your best pitch man for investment foundational tech on your way out here? Yes. So how I define foundational tech is technology that can greatly 
enable, preserve, and accelerate human or planetary flourishing. It's technology that can serve as foundational building blocks of a radically more resilient, self-sustaining, and dynamic America. It's not saying that government is not needed. It's not saying that regulations are not needed. It's not saying that we shouldn't help the rest of the world, but it is saying we should get our own house in order. And let's all agree, actually, that America has a long way to go. So instead of just complaining about it, let's build a system that is like always working in the way that we want it to work. And this will unfortunately challenge industries of outrage that love it that things don't work right now. But so I guess that's like the first time I thought about who would not want this people that kind of secretly want things. I to love watching you work this through as we talk. It's awesome. Yeah. This is why Verveke and I, I was so drawn to Verveke and why we had such good conversations is because I do get a ton of value from Dialogos because I actually care about the truth, right? Oh yeah, I no, I can tell you are, you're a man who is struggling with the truth, which is awesome. <laughs> You know, what's funny is that I have, I don't know if you cut, I don't know if I mentioned this in any of my interviews, but I have aphantasia. Is that like where you see colors or something like no, that? No, I have the opposite of that. I can't see anything in my brain. You don't see, you don't picture stuff or have an no. inner dialogue or anything no. like that? Those are not necessarily tied together, but I also don't have the inner dialogue. And so why like... The dialogos thing to me is magic to me because it literally just like none of what I'm saying is prepared except like the definition that I, I, I wrote read just now. Like it's all and why I hate, why I have such an instinctual distaste for politicians that just like sound nice but are kind of full of shit is because I couldn't memorize a speech if I wanted to. So I don't even now I feel like I have so many more questions. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it, 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 your... it, it really does affect my, my, my world. I've heard of people that have that condition. I just have never know. I don't know if I'd ever met one before you. So when you read some, when you look at a book, you can read it, right? Like you're not reading it out loud. Yeah, I can read it. I have the opposite of photogenic, a photographic memory. It's in my, me I have, in general, it's hard for me to have like, I'm, I memorize very few quotes, right? I, sure. Three of friends like, oh, Francis Bacon once said, well, it's like, I can't do that. Or it would have, I'd have to really struggle for that. How but did you do computer programming? It was, it really was like, it helped to have good tools where you could find the file that you needed to edit. And like, there's, I think there's just more, and it's probably only easier and easier, but I have an interesting brain where I have to be really immersed in whatever I'm learning to be able to get into this flow state that is not even conscious necessarily, right? So when I was like the fastest promoted, I definitely wasn't the best, but I was like, but for whatever it was, I was like tied for first in terms of like fastest promoted Google. Super successful, right? It's not easy to get the job you got at Google. Yeah. And I was shipping like a shit ton of code because I just like, when I, I it was literally like started, it sounds weird, but it's like, it became like a part of me because I would just. You're going through loops of sorts then. Like that's the only way I can imagine it working where like you're reviewing what you're trying to do. You're reviewing the code and you solve the differentiation or something like that. Like just through continuous loops like that. 
yeah, just it's really helpful to be un, uninterrupted and just working. Yeah, in a way that enables me to even be in a flow state. But uh, but I if guess, I say picture Clifford the big red dog, you oh, don't okay. come up with a red dog in your head. I can't see my I can't see my parents. I can't see myself. Wow. Which is also interesting. When did you right? realize that this was a thing that you were different somehow? This was like five years ago maybe five, six years ago. So this is in your adult life, you've realized this. Yeah, very recent actually. And and it helped me explain a lot of things like why I can be like it, to not be self-conscious when I'm like at a party or something. There's other things that you have to get over. But I, what I realized was like a lot of people would be imagining what they look like and I can't, right? So just, <laughs> it, it, it would help me to not have to worry about that I, like and when like you're pausing though and looking around what are you doing what do you mean right there you're you're just like oh you know, yeah i would yeah. you're pausing you're, it looks like you're thinking what's going on i'm just i'm not i'm just uh, that ideas are going through my brain but it's there's no audio visual component to it i don't even know how to imagine that <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah imagine that yeah like i don't like wow huh so, is look, there a way you can contextualize what it is to you, though? How you experience thoughts, then? Yes. Let me see if I can pull up something like I've written about it. Okay. It's very helpful for me to have routines that I, I guess, speaking of loops, right? I really rely on why it's so natural for me to think about processes and where processes are defective because I'm so dependent on them. So every week I'll go through the same things. Like, hey, answer this question, answer this question. And I'm like, I almost have like software for my own life. Right? Yeah. Because yeah. otherwise I'd be relying on my own memory of, okay, how do you plan for this coming week? And so I'm like, I'm cataloging all these different things that, that I think are useful for me in the future. I have lists of so many different things, like products that I encounter, book recommendations. I'll never remember a book otherwise that someone says, like in a conversation. I usually take notes on almost every important meeting that I have just so that I can reference it. It's like, okay, when's the last time I met John, right? And what did we talk about? I can go back on that. But like when I prompt you on what you said during a conversation with John, it comes up to you. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Okay. Yeah. So this is, there's a lot, of, there's a lot I could say uh, about how this affects like what I am doing right now and why it makes sense that I'm doing what I'm doing relative to a hypothetical version of myself that, that had, that didn't have authentic. I can't not be like authentic because whatever I do say, like even literally what I'm saying right now, it's just coming out of my mouth. Like I'm not, I'm not seeing like a script and like editing in real time. Like during this conversation, I'm contemplating different avenues that I can go down with you and what the potential consequences and what might work well and might what might not just to make it a good conversation. I'm trying to pay attention to things like how frequently I interrupt you versus let you keep going kind of thing. Are those things that, what does that bring forth for you when you hear that? So I almost, almost feel like there's a, if I want to be conscious of something like that, like how many times I'm interrupting, how long am I speaking? I'd have to like set an intention to do that. And okay, yeah, I don't know. I think social interaction is, was definitely a challenge when I was growing up and it's definitely not the easiest thing for me, especially when there's like multiple people in a room. Sure. 
because and that's not i'm not going to explain that entirely on like aphantasia it's like how different people's brains work but i think what helped what helped me i think what i tend to prefer and what works well for me is being very mad is like doing enough reps of whatever i want however i want to perform in almost like a manual way so if i'm analyzing like a tweet and like thinking about how this would be received by different people, like across a political spectrum or something. I'll do that manually. And then over time, my brain will just automatically like, like it's almost like a, it's almost like a program that's like red flag or not, whether this mm. would be well received or not by all these different audiences. I'm not seeing like a, a table of check mark X, it's, it's just like happening. And like, I'll have, if I want to, I can list it out on paper and be like, yep, my, my intuition was correct. What the intuition, which was a product of doing that hard work initially worked out, but it's often very hard for me to, it's like impossible for me to follow multiple threads of conversation at the same time. Yeah. Multi-threading is very different. Like that's most people don't do that well whatsoever. That's, but it's like, it sounds like you also, you also will be challenging, like listening to somebody and coming up with a thought at the same time. Yeah, I, that seems right, I think. Huh, okay. That's, yeah, it's, it's funny because what one of the things, like I'm the opposite uh, of that. I'm really bad at, I think I'm really bad at multitasking. Yeah, most, most people aren't as good as they think they are at multitasking, right? Like, nobody's really good at it. Your brain typically, but it's like, I know Ace pointed this out in our last podcast with him. It's like, I have a very hard time shutting off what's the inner dialogue and the processing, mm -hmm. even while we're having a conversation, like I do a little bit of both at the same time. And when I'm listening to somebody, that inner dialogue is almost always running and doing comparisons and what have you processing in some way, like generating ideas based upon what I hear. And from what I'm hearing from you, like that's just not much of a thing that you do. Yeah, I've been told I can be a really good listener or a really bad one based <laughs> on whether something else is on my mind. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, and we all do that to an extent, but yeah. I, I, I think it is like particularly extreme for me. Yeah. Which for, I'm not which, doubting you, by the way. Like yeah. I, I can kind of observe it like mm. a bit. Like it's not, what you're saying doesn't surprise me. It's only surprising in the way that I've never had that explained to somebody by somebody who experiences it before. <laughs> For sure. It's been such a helpful exercise for me to think about what this uniquely suits me for. I even created, this is actually kind of funny to, and you can definitely edit a lot of this because this is, some of this is kind of boring because I just spent a lot of time saying nothing. I created this game called Our Magic Within, which didn't really, had no intention of starting as a game. And it's a very simple game, but I just sent it to you. Cool. But it sprouted from me being really interested in like how my brain was different from other people. I think that's so important for people to think about, to understand how they're different from other people, because you are uniquely suited for different things. Yes, very much. So I have friends that like can do UI design in their brain. Right? Yeah. I, can, I, I couldn't do that. Like I can somehow do is, again, like how would I even describe it? I can, like, I can, what I can easily do is, is be like, yeah, this is a really, this branding and this storytelling is really good. And, and it's very compelling. And 
that's something I can do, but I'm just like looking, right? And just, or just, oh, this art is really nice. Yeah, I don't have nearly much as much of that. It's not as, <laughs> yeah, not in the same way other people who are good at that do. I wonder if that's why you're so good at these scripts and one minute explainers. Cause like when you bang those out, when you listen to them, it's like, those are crisp. Those are Thank really you. good. Yeah, every single word is carefully chosen. Yeah, I mean, it's because like my, brain is like considering the alternatives like in real time when i'm like typing it out I'm, okay you know this could be worded better because i'm it, I like the game of forcing it to be in a minute as well and i also and i just know that just from experience that this is just not something that people are, are often good at and so it's okay yeah. if, if this kind of stuff is needed then and you and you kind of enjoy it and you think it's valuable for the world maybe you should do it more and so i started to collect all these different questions and the listeners might be interested in what kind of questions. Okay. Can you remember numbers easily? So yeah. people, people that are in finance, like you better be able to freaking remember numbers easily and, and just do calculations in your head. I can't do that. Can you conjure up in front of you? Object you know, rotations. Object okay. rotation. Yeah. Can you imagine? Okay. You're a, uh, you're Beyonce stage designer. Like you better be able to in your head. Other, otherwise you're probably not the best to do that. Cause some people can do that. Right. Yeah. I was, I met this person the other day who was saying that she really loves designing her, her, the interior of her apartment. I'm like, okay, can you like almost be like a bird and look down upon our conversation right now? Cause I, and I knew that she could, cause I, and not everyone can do that actually. Yeah. Have you ever heard of this woman? I'm trying to remember her name, but she's like autistic. She does work with designing things that cows and bulls and stuff go through before while they're going to be processed, basically. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And she's Grandel. Oh. It's like Grandel Templeton or something like that. I'll have to look it up. But it's like, like what you're like, in, like in a relatively ethical way. She says she's on the spectrum somewhere. And she's clearly a little, she's clearly a little odd. Um, but like she, for some reason, like all these big companies hired because she's able to get into the mind of the bull and she designs these, these systems no, that just no, work I mean, for these. I, I believe it. I yeah. Believe yeah. It. That just was what it reminded me of. I think you might want to check Grandin Templeton, I think is the name. Okay, I think autistic people, I feel like I'm mildly autistic, honestly. Like my, my, my brother brought it up for the first time two years ago. And I, you know, it's just, oh, wow. Maybe that's a, maybe that's. I wouldn't that's guess true. that having spoken to you, I do. It doesn't well, surprise me to hear your brain works a little bit differently than most people's from how are you describing, but you know, I'm no, what do I know? Okay. I, I don't know. I don't even care. I don't even necessarily care. I just know that I think the more important thing is that people's brains work very differently yeah. and we should not have we should take advantage of that. You should take advantage of yes. that for yourself and recognize that what's, it might surprise some people be like, there's some for almost everyone, for like for certain kinds of careers that you do, it's like almost no one can do what you do, even if they tried. Yeah. So you should pick the ones where you have this unique advantage. Yeah, or yeah, some for people, sure. Some people have like more talents, like that just, that's like the luck of the draw. Like you, like, a random or not so random thing like my family history puts me in a really positive position yeah. to be an advocate for America. And so you, you like, you start to really just understand like who you are and say, okay, if I were to, does, if I were to design like a video game characters, because a lot of people can't really get out of their own body. It's like the ego so tied up and it's like, okay, imagine like 
you were designing like a video game character, would you have them play the role that you're currently playing right now? It's actually kind of feels off. Okay, what, what else yeah. should they be doing? For example, there's people that like they can recreate, like they can re like a, they can imagine like their favorite meals and they can smell the meal, they can taste the meals. Right? Yeah. And so culinary sort of professions could be really good for them. Right. It's similar. And also like, there's some people that can reimagine any smell and then they can even combine smells. And so what does that sound like? Someone that can make perfumes. Right. So there's just, there's so many different dimensions of how um, human brains work. And we also, we all seem to have these like unique emergent properties that are they're similar to others but are just us that you need to try to fit into the right role for you in life 100 and that's always a work in progress but i think one one of the things that i like to do with this game whenever i do play it with people it's just literally just asking questions like this is helping them appreciate that there's a lot, there's a lot more to understand about themselves, which is like fun. And then it's also differences are cool, right? The differences are really valuable, right? So there's like a pathology, there's like more pathological ways that you can talk about diversity, but there's so many different elements of diversity within across us, right? There's so much more than the pigmentation of your skin. Right? Oh, completely. Like they, they, it's one of the more, most short-sighted uh, myopic ways of viewing the diversity of people is some sort of projection about the shape and color of your body, like in, in, in very uninteresting ways. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, what is it? Is it any final thoughts? Any um, final thoughts, my man? Final thoughts. Yeah, just grateful that you reached out. This was helpful. I will say, yeah, like the fact that we scheduled some time today gave me some more motivation to actually clarify what I was thinking. So those two documents that you read, the beliefs and then the manifesto. If you want me to publish them, I'll throw them up on the site. I know you've got a bigger audience than me anyway. You don't need me to get things around. So it's really good to just talk it through, right? And that'll test it. It'll, these were all these will all ultimately evolve. And that's actually kind of a funny thing where it's like, I've already evolved so many times. How could it possibly evolve? It's like always gonna evolve, right? Yeah, and it and you're always picking, I think, a heck of a lot differently from what I did when I was in my 20s. But it's not as though all of the things that I believed were wrong. It's like sometimes it's just a point of emphasis or it's just one thing that when, for example, I used to think that that you needed it was essentially like much higher taxation to pay for things and that you needed progressive taxation in order to for people to be more alike and have more in common so they got along. Well, the problem came when like, when it's true that people get along with people who are more like them, right? That's the tribalistic thing. But the idea of attempting to engineer that through financial manipulation isn't necessarily correct. And the idea that like, we're all of a sudden going to have a much more equitable society because of some centralized financial engineering. That was wrong, I believe. But it's not like all of the ideas. You just have to recombine them in a more useful way. That's a great point. I think it was a great way to to wrap. Yeah, it's interesting kind of looking at 
the last, yeah, it's almost 30 years of my life. I'm at this like really interesting point where I really do understand so much of like youth culture and also have a decent amount of some wisdom that I want to really double down on and, and try to create something that can be attractive to many different kinds of people. Well, I think you've definitely got your finger on the pulse of some things and I'm glad to have you on my podcast as an ally, I hope moving forward. And I hope you feel free to reach out anytime you want to talk about anything either on the on camera or off and sort some of this shit out together. Awesome. Jeffrey, appreciate it and have a great rest of your day. Hey Gary, take care, man. Thanks a lot.